most spiritual practices, including this one, are ways of opening beyond the world of thoughts into a sense of wholeness, connectedness with all of life. And many of you know the word whole and holy have the same root, that when we touch into a sense of wholeness, there's a real experience of awe and wonder because we're touching into the whole of our beings, which feels quite sacred. Now, one of the foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha taught was the foundation of thinking, of the thinking mind. And it's a very powerful place to start bringing awareness. The reason being, we spend huge, huge amounts of our daily life often thoughts. So as we start to become aware of that, as we start to recognize that we're thinking, in that moment of awareness, what happens is we've opened beyond thoughts. And there can be a sense of freedom, of liberation, from really a contracted sense of being into quite an a boundless, open awareness. When we look closely at our thinking mind, the world of thoughts, what we find is the sticky ones, you know, sticky thoughts that you just keep on coming back to and back to, are fear-based. They come out of uh, the worry mind. You know, they come out of the mind that perceives the world as in some way not okay, that perceives us as not okay, and then thoughts become the way to try to control or fix what's going on. Those are the stickiest ones. Those are where we have the most identification because there's wanting and fearing going on. And as I mentioned, the mood that corresponds with those sticky thoughts is the mood of fear that we get caught in. So tonight, what I'd like to talk about is the freedom that's possible as we begin to open out of those thoughts the freedom that's possible when we begin to be with fear in a wakeful, mindful way and open to the space of heart-mind that's not caught in fear. In one way, it can be, it can be understood meditation is this practice of really waking up out of a fearful dream because that's what it is, these thought forms that we live in. A number of years ago, a group of Western teachers met with the Dalai Lama and asked him the question of what would most benefit students in the West. And his response was faith, you know, that if we could develop trust in our true nature, trust in the power of awareness and the power of the heart to be with life, to wake up through life. If we had that trust, that would be the grounds for everything for us. The truth is, for many of us, we live in what's called the world of hopes and fears, you know? When there's no hope, then there's no fear. 
but that's not what we live in. We have this sense of something's wrong or not enough, and so our hope and all our energies around changing it, controlling it, making it different. So we live in a lot of fear that we won't get what we want. There are different ways of responding to fear. Now, in the West, frequently the ways that fear are dealt with is to ignore it. Sometimes it's to try to manipulate it. There's some therapies that we know about that we try to work with fear by putting on affirmations. Nothing bad's going to happen and good things are going to happen. And I'm not this way, I'm that way as a person. I'm a good person, not a bad person. So affirmations. There's even uh, recently I heard about in the Washington Post research and there's one brand of researchers called worry researchers. Have you heard of this? Worry researchers? And what they discovered is that when we're under stress, the body of course is, you know, all sorts of adrenaline is released, and we get in the state of excitation. And we have thoughts that are, the thoughts go, something's wrong, and that excitation then becomes anxiety. And what worry researchers have discovered is you can't then say, okay, calm down, imagine a big wide ocean and that you're lying in the sun and you're hearing the waves because that's a mismatch for the chemical state you're in. Instead, if you reframe things and feel all the excitation and reframe it as, Hey, an adventure, something exciting's about to happen. Ah, the mystery, or think of sex, or winning the lottery, or, you know, reframe it into excitation with a positive slant versus something's wrong. That's a way of beginning to work with anxiety. That might work in some situations, but my sense is that if it's deep fear, if it's the kind of fear where you can't reframe it and say, no, you'll never die, that kind of fear, you know, (laughs) then we need something a little more radical as a way of helping us to face what's going on. And in a way, that's the whole of the spiritual path, is really learning how to die in some way, how to face the truth of life and death and be with it in a way that can free us, not tie us up in knots. So the approach that we take in meditation practice is not to try to slap on positive thoughts that'll tell us, you know, this isn't going to happen, but rather a more profound kind of reframe, which is instead of being caught in good thought, bad thought, to be able to relax back into an awareness that can be with what's happening with kind attention. In the moment that we can sense fear as as waves of energy and be with them, but not be inside them, include them in our awareness, relate to them, not from them, there's a radical shift in how we experience fear. It's still there, but it's got not the same power over us. 
fear is really the grounds of our awakening. In a moment that we can face fear, we open to a place that's bigger than the contracted identity we've been in. Fear represents that which we've not yet opened to accepting. You know? Jack Cornfield describes it that when fear comes up in practice and in life, it's like a little flag going, about to grow, about to grow, you know, in our minds. When we are reactive to fear, we're not willing to be with it. What it's like is that we're like this river of life and we've pulled off of it and created a little pool to protect ourselves. Don't want to feel this. A lot of barricades around the edges. And the water becomes stagnant. It has an illusion of safety, but very little life to it. That's what happens when we are unwilling to be with fear. But it's not so easy. It's not so easy to be with. When you think of it, how as a culture we bring children up, as a society, we don't teach them well how to be with fear. I hear a lot of sad stories about that. Um, and I know from my own childhood, it's, it's pretty pervasive. There are a few different ways that parents respond to children when they're afraid. One way is to kind of deny the validity of the fear. Oh, there's nothing under that bed, you know. There's no ghost in that closet. So what if the other kids make fun of you? You just stick with your, you know. They, they don't acknowledge that, hey, that really is a fear. Another thing that happens is it's just plain ignored. It's an inconvenience to have to deal with some of the fears that children come up with. Well, sometimes children are shamed for their fears. Oh, don't be silly, or why don't you grow up? You're acting like a little baby, you know? So they get denied, they get ignored, they get shamed. All the while, parents unconsciously feed the fears. Watch out, it's a dangerous world. You can't do, if you keep acting like that, you'll never make it, you know? We're not okay as we are. So it's kind of tough because we grow up with these, with a kind of primal mood of fear about not being okay and about the world being difficult and yet no way to really know how to be with our fears and somewhat ashamed of them in many instances. The major source of our fears are the stories that we've learned to tell ourselves about ourselves, the I'm not okay stories. And we've talked about that here a number of times, that something's wrong with me and something's wrong with my life. And we believe in those stories. We believe in them. Some of the stories are about us at work, that in some way we're a fraud or people will see through us and we'll be found incompetent and fired, or about how we are as partners that will be rejected in some way, or as parents that we're not good enough, or about our bodies. Our bodies are looking worse, getting sickly, old. You know, we, we live in those fears about what's wrong. 
and we become the shape of them. You know, that is the basic contraction in our bodies, is these fearful thoughts. So, the doorway to freedom, you know, I've, I've mentioned here before, to take the world of concept, these ideas, in two hands and drop them, as a Zen Buddhist say. It's care and recognition. Hey, thinking, thinking, believing these thoughts. It's beginning to wake up to what's happening. The problem is, and this is, you know, a basic part of the practice. In each of the meditations, we sit down and talk about paying attention to the breath or sensations, and if you go off in thought, just recognize it. But you notice how long you can be off in them? (laughs) We get very lost, very identified. Our beings take the shape of our thoughts a lot of moments of our lives. So it's not so easy to come back. It's not so easy to connect with the moment. Thoughts are a really compelling refuge. They're pretty much revered in Western civilization. And, and I'll say it right now in honor of thinking, for many good reasons. There have been many accomplishments and comforts and advances that have made a difference due to our thinking mind. Ways of communicating, ways of becoming more full. So thoughts have their place, but they also, in a very, very big way, stop us from being whole. And that's what I'd like to spend some more time on, how that happens. The movement of our mind, called thoughts, arises out of dissatisfaction, out of that something's wrong feeling. Something wrong, I want this. Something wrong, I don't want that. Most of our thoughts, when we pay close attention, and as mentioned before, the sticky ones, you'll see that they're either worry thoughts or planning thoughts. We're either rehearsing and planning the future. You know how you rehearse talking to somebody you're nervous about talking to. We rehearse everything. We, we plan ahead on things. We go fast forward. And then we also go review, rewind, and, and run through past stuff. A lot of moments where we're not here, driven by fear, driven by worry, driven by planning. We also have a lot of thoughts that are to create more pleasure. If we're not feeling alive in the moment, we'll just fantasize enlivening events and activities. We all know about that. We'll have thoughts that'll help us to kind of reframe how we think about ourselves so we can feel better, re-explain ourselves to ourselves. This is George Carlin. He writes, I'm not a complete vegetarian. I eat only animals that have died in their sleep. So we have thoughts to keep ourselves feeling okay about ourselves. We think in ways to keep ourselves entertained. You know, we all fear being bored. An example of that comes straight from Saturday Night Live. Some of you know this one. When I found the skull in the woods, the first thing I did was call the police. But then I got curious about it. I picked it up and started wondering who this person was and why he had deer horns. 
<laughs> we create worlds upon worlds, don't we, in there? <laughs> One writer describes it that what we seek is endless excitement and perfect peace at once, you know? So, here we are in our mysterious world, insecure. This is our predicament. And using thoughts to try to control and navigate through. We use thoughts to not really touch what's happening. They're a buffer in a sense. And there's painful consequences. The most painful consequence is a splitting off. We are split off from the rest of our beings when we're in just simply living in thoughts. We're not connected to our bodies, our hearts, our emotions, the earth. When we're separated from our body, you know, when we're not feeling these legs and this energy and the movement of life in here, when we're separated from the larger body, our earth, that we belong to, What happens is that we don't listen to the natural rhythms of what's going on within us and around us. Not listening, we are not responsible, able to respond. We can't take care of ourselves as well. This really came home to me several years ago when I was studying for a licensing exam in psychology. And what happened to me was the licensing board became the enemy because they were putting together an exam that was designed to trick me, you know, and maybe make me fail. And so my whole life was like I was very invested in gathering information and thinking well and knowing a lot. So I, so I just took refuge in the brain, you know, and um, cut off from my body and people around me in many ways. Um, Some of the most obvious were that, you know, I wasn't eating as well, I was drinking more caffeine, I wasn't exercising as much, you know, all the wrong stuff. I didn't even floss, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Recycling became a total hassle, I resented it, you know. So... One day, oh, and any phone call that came in was like a total intrusion on my existence. And you can imagine the state of mind. I was just running through the answers to, to exam questions in my mind. I was living in that. So I got a phone call one day, and they asked me, are you Tara Brock? And they named my age and my profession. They said, well, congratulations. You've won a cruise to the Caribbean. And everything we went, yeah, right you know, because the world was my enemy. I wasn't winning anything. And um, so I said, no way. And then they said more things about me that not too many, not everybody would know. And um, said, weren't you at the fun festival in Maryland? Well, I hadn't been at any fun festival. I was studying for an exam. So, so I said, I'm sorry. And he said, ma'am, you're going to lose your chance to have this cruise. And I said, no way. So I hung up. Several hours later, found out that my son and his aunt, my sister, had been at that fun festival. They had entered my name in this contest, and I had one. (laughs) But I wasn't there to receive anything, you know? 
I didn't have a trust or connection with the world to think it was even possible that anything was coming my way. We miss out on a lot more than cruises to the Caribbean when we get lost in our thought world. You know what I mean? We miss out on a lot of life, a lot of springtimes, a lot of beauty with the people around us when we're lost in thoughts. You know, we can't really be in relationship with others when we're living just solely in a thought realm. Relationships are this idea, but we can't feel communion and connection. We can't feel where we are and they are when we're off in thoughts. And sadly, when we're lost in thoughts, there's not a sense of belonging to much. You know, we not only don't belong to the earth, but other people become other. And when other people become other, they can become threatening, and then violence arises. This is Chief Standing Bear of the Lakota Indians. He writes, the white man does not understand America, nature, earth. He is too far removed from its formative processes. The roots of the tree of his life have not yet grasped the rock and the soil. The white man is troubled by primitive fears. Disconnected from the earth, off in the world of thoughts. And disconnected in that way and, and lost in our fear-based thoughts, we become violent creatures because we're so busy trying to defend against perceived threats. It was truly observed that the pilgrims who landed at Plymouth Rock first fell on their knees and then upon the Aborigines. Conquering nature overcoming our enemies, feeling that we have enemies. We turn parts of ourselves into the enemy too. When we're lost, when we're caught in our th thought world, there's good, bad, right, wrong. Parts of our own being are perceived as wrong or inadequate or not okay. They become the shadow. And we are violent, dismissive, unable to listen to, those parts of ourselves. We violate ourselves in the same way. We don't listen to our deepest longings. We numb out to our fears. We numb out to our grief. We get addicted to things. We create a shadow and then violate ourselves. This is Rumi. The sunset sometimes look like the sun is coming up. Do you know what a faithful love is like? You're crying. You say you've burned yourself. But can you think of anyone who's not hazy with smoke? We've all done it. We've all turned on ourselves. We've all hurt ourselves. One of the ways that we violate ourselves most deeply is in our busyness. We are busy in our thoughts and are busy in our activities and that keeps us from being here. There's the Chinese word for busyness, heart killing. It's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty accurate. 
when we stay busy and lost and separate from our hearts and our bodies and each other. So this is suffering. The fear and the contraction and the separation that arise when we get caught in this small world of thinking. And the Buddha described that, in a sense, his life was a response to this. I teach only suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing only. So practice, the practices of paying attention that we do, are really the movement from kind of a a trapped in thoughts, feeling separate experience to one of opening in mindfulness to all of what is. Some of you know I have a t-shirt that across the front says meditation. It's not what you think. One of my first retreats up at IMS, Joseph Goldstein, who was teaching, at one point, right in the middle of it, said, just quite simply, do you want to think or be free? It's very powerful. It might, might be just a certain moment you need to hear a certain thing. You know how that is. But for me, at that moment, it became quite clear. Thinking is very useful at certain times. But to truly have the capacity to see and recognize thinking and open beyond it was the only way to be free. So, how do we do that? How do we start really cultivating that capacity to open out of thinking? When I was putting this talk together, I was putting some stuff on the computer, I wrote that out, how do we do that? And at that moment, there was a power outage. (laughs) There was a storm, everything went out. And so, you know, it was like, I thought that was great. (laughs) And um, my son and I took some flashlights and and climbed into bed together and started reading Garfield cartoons under the covers. So that flavored what happened next. I'll tell you what we... (laughs) Here's what the Garfield that we ran into. He'd just fallen face first in some tomato soup that he didn't want because it wasn't lasagna. <laughs> John, John says, as long as I live, I'll never understand cats. And Garfield, face in the soup, says, cats? What are cats? We soda crackers know nothing of cats. <laughs> you know, opening up to a new identity. <laughs> Okay, I know that stretches it. <laughs> the practice of waking up out of thoughts is opening up to a new identity, though. Our whole sense of self is constructed out of thoughts. So when we open up out of the particular waves of thoughts that we're living in, we are letting go of, or letting die, a small self and opening up to what has been called big mind, our the universal or boundless, our Buddha nature. The process starts for all of us, each in our own way, with some 
glimmerings or realizations that there's more, that this, this world we've been living in isn't all that there is. There's a sense of more. It comes in different ways for different people. For some, it comes in nature when finally there is that kind of dropping away of the thought world and a real just immediacy and vitality of the life within and around us. Some are woken up to it through drugs. Many, many people of my generation through drugs. For some, it's, it's in the intensity of love with another being that kind of all the ideas of things seem to drop away because that is such a compelling, overwhelming, and wonderful feeling. For some, it's with birth of a child or death of someone. Different ways that we get this glimmering that the world that we lived in isn't just, isn't where it's at. There's more than we thought. I'd like to read you a story called The Three Fish. This is written by Rumi. This is the story of the lake and the three big fish that were in it, one of them intelligent, another half intelligent, and the third stupid. Some fishermen came to the edge of the lake with their nets. The three fish saw them. The intelligent fish decided at once to leave, to make the long, difficult trip to the ocean. He thought, I won't consult with these two on this. They will only weaken my resolve because they love this place so. They call it home. Their ignorance will keep them here. It's right to love your home place, but first ask, where is that really? The wise fish saw the men in their nets and said, I'm leaving. So the intelligent fish made its whole length a moving footprint, and like a deer the dog's chase suffered greatly on its way, but finally made it to the edgeless safety of the sea. The half-intelligent fish thought, my guide is gone. I ought to have gone with him, but I didn't, and now I've lost my chance to escape. I wish I had gone with him. He mourns the absence of his guide for a while and then thinks, what can I do to save myself from these men and their nets? Perhaps if I pretend to be already dead. I'll belly up on the surface and float like weeds float, just giving myself totally to the water, to die before I die, as Muhammad said to. So he did that. He bobbed up and down helpless within arm's reach of the fishermen. Look at this, the best and biggest fish is dead. One of the men lifted him by the tail, spat on him, and threw him up on the ground. He rolled over and over and slid secretly near the water and then back in. Meanwhile, the third fish, the dumb one, was agitatedly jumping about trying to escape with his agility and cleverness. The net, of course, finally closed around him and as he lay in the terrible frying pan bed, he thought, if I get out of this, I'll never live again in the limits of a lake. Next time, the ocean. I'll make infinity my home.
So our practice is to remind us of the ocean, that it's our habit to be in a smaller place, and there's great suffering in it, to remember what our true home is. I've talked here a few times about the two qualities of awareness that are cultivated as we remember and open to our true home, where we belong, the ocean of being. And one of those qualities is wisdom. There's a quality of clear seeing. We see clearly the lake, the waves of thought that we've been living in, the waves of emotion that we've been calling ourself. We start to see clearly, and that's wisdom. And then compassion, that our hearts open and we sense a connectedness with all beings, a sense of kindness towards whatever arises. These are different flavors of it, heart and mind, wisdom and compassion. The words for heart and mind are the same in many Asian scripts. And yet there's different flavors of the way we experience this waking up, becoming and belonging to a boundless sense of identity. It has to do with a a basic shift in identity. And the way Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa, teaches about it, one way he does, is he puts up a big sheet of paper, huge big sheet of paper, and he draws a little V on it. Then he says, okay, what's this? And people mostly say, a bird. Finally, after a while, he says, no, it's the sky with a bird flying through it. You sense that shift? We become the awareness that includes the birds and the clouds and the grief and the joy. We're all of it. What allows us to make that shift is when we begin to recognize the waves of experience as they occur. We begin to name them and we use noting or labeling as a way to aid that recognition in Vipassana, to note or name what's there. When we see a contraction in the body, an emotion, a thought, to recognize that fully. It's as the shamans say, fear can have no power over us if there's recognition, a full recognition. The moment we name something, The awareness that's recognized that we're resting in, it's bigger than that which is seen. We become the ocean that includes the wave. It's a shift in identity. We all know the sense of freedom that comes when we begin to name or tell our stories with other people that sense that it's no longer such a personal and terrible thing. This is actually most beautifully illustrated, I think, in the self-help groups, where there's the sharing of stories, and it becomes so obvious. It's us. It's all of our story, different little variations and themes. And we're not so serious about ourselves. It's not such a heavy personal experience. As, As one writer says, that people think angels fly because they have wings. Angels fly because they take themselves lightly. You know? 
We don't take it quite so seriously. When we sense that we all share the story, then the story is seen more, it's recognized more. In South Africa now, starting several weeks ago, a truth commission was formed to allow people that suffered greatly under the era of apartheid to tell their stories. It has that same kind of healing and freeing in mind that if you carry your personal story and it's yours and only yours, there's bitterness and vengeance and suffering. And there's a healing that comes when we start to tell each other our stories. In meditation, when our stories arise, that's what it is. It's allowing the story to be there, but to recognize it, to see it, to have a bigger awareness that holds a space for that story. So one piece of opening out of our thoughts is just to recognize, ah, thinking, thinking, but there's more. If it just stays with that, it can have a subtle aversion, can be like observing something going on, but I don't want to touch it, you know, I don't want to feel it. So there's another piece. There's recognizing thoughts, and then there's sitting down in the experience, the life that's underneath. What that means is when we have thoughts that are very charged, the practice is not just to go back to the breath. If the thoughts are very intense or the real sticky ones, drop under them, discover the emotions, the sensations, the life that's under them. A real willingness to be with what's there. It's only then that there's a full recognition. Recognition is not just a cognitive, oh, thinking. It's a full being with what's there, what's underneath. A story that I heard several months ago was of adult children of an elderly man treating him for his birthday to a ride in an airplane. And it wasn't just a normal airplane. I think it was a biplane or something kind of exciting. So so they and the grandchildren stayed on the ground and the granddad went up first time in the air, flew around, you know, they usually give you about 12 minutes to circle around and loop and do this and that. And then it returned and he got out, kind of shaking. They said, how was it, granddaddy, how was it? And he said, oh, it was really great, but I never quite let my weight down, you know. (laughs) Do you know how that is, that we kind of go through life and we don't quite sit down in it all? We hold off or ward off the full immensity of being. We do that. So part of this practice of opening out of thoughts is to really sit down in our experience, to open fully to the life that's here, to touch it and to feel it. When we do, when we really open to it, the waves become water. We recognize, really, that it's all water. You know, it's not just a separate wave that's ours and personal. It becomes part of the whole ocean. We can sense that it's changing, moving, and that it belongs with the rest. We, again, become the ocean. We rest in the whole. This is experienced in the mind as becoming a clear space of awareness that has room for everything. Life arises and moves and changes in that clear space of awareness. 
a beautiful line from one Tibetan teacher is, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Just sense that. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. Letting go of the busyness of the thoughts and just becoming all of it, a great sky or ocean a being. Letting what happens just arise and fall away in that clear open space. So that's the way the mind experiences it. The heart experiences this openness as open, compassionate awareness with all of life interconnected, a sense of really embracing and being with it all. So this is the second wing. This is the shift of the opening. When you bring presence to what is, we open to caring. We open to deeply caring. For many of us, when it's difficult or painful, to open in this way requires a very intentional forgiving of what's there, meaning letting go of what we're holding against. Forgiving, not resisting. And it has to be intentional, because we have so much conditioning to push away things. When it's difficult to forgive, sometimes just asking the question, what's so difficult to accept this moment? You know, there's certain questions that actually connect us with our experience. If at a moment of difficulty, what's so hard to accept right now? And that very question allows you to open to the pain that's there. talked about the metta or loving-kindness meditation, that we begin to have the capacity, just as you might put your hand very tenderly on your heart or your cheek, that offering care to the painful or difficult experiences is like putting a hand very tenderly on yourself, sending that message of, it's okay, you know, of care. So part of our practice is to cultivate that capacity when it's difficult, to keep on caring, to put that hand on our heart or our cheek, either physically or or in some way energetically, sending that message. It's really like that we can hold ourselves. It's to learn to do that when it's hard. Sometimes, when we encounter very intense fear, very difficult, painful states, we're just not able to be with it. Sometimes we just don't have a big enough container or access to kindness or presence to really be there with what's going on. And at those times, it's actually wise to do something else, to follow the breath or to go for a walk or take a shower, to, to find a way to access or touch peace so that we can then come back at some point and be with our own being with more of a sense of resourcefulness and space and care. One of the most powerful practices I've encountered, and this involves getting kind of help from the other. It's like in some way, allowing another to embrace, has the sense of resting in the great heart of the Buddha. That when we're, when we're sensing our own heart isn't big enough for our fear and our pain, 
the sense that we're resting in the heart of that which is greater. In the Tibetan practice, one, one visualization is to imagine this golden bodhisattva of compassion. And imagine it, just imagine in front of you and it's radiating just pure love and compassion. And that that radiance surrounds and embraces and permeates your being. And what happens with that visualization is that when you feel very held by and in the kind of embrace of a bodhisattva of compassion, it reconnects you with your own natural heart of compassion. So it's kind of a, a, what might be called a skillful means of sensing love outside us as a way to come back and rest in the truly natural and very radiant heart of our own being. So there are ways when we're not able to, in that moment, be with fear of touching peace and opening to love in a conscious, intentional manner so that there is room. And that's part of our practice, to do that. When we do, when we start having this capacity more and more to be with what's there, to be with what's difficult, we're able to be there for other people. We can't be with another's pain until we've developed the capacity to be with our own. When we have, there's a sense of connection and being with all other beings. There's a story about a holy man who gave two men each a chicken and said, go kill them where no one can see. One guy went behind the fence and killed the chicken. The other guy walked around for two days and came back with the chicken. The holy man said, you didn't kill the chicken? The guy said, well, everywhere I go, the chicken sees. We stop feeling so separate. We really start connecting with all beings when we have that kind of caring presence. Our practice is one of attention. When we really pay attention to any part of life, there's a natural care that arises. If somebody paid attention to another being they considered their enemy and looked deeply enough, they wouldn't be able to continue to consider that being as an other because attention connects us. It opens us, it connects us. This is from offerings at the, at the wall, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection. And it's a letter. Dear sir, for 22 years I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day that we faced one another on that trail in Chun Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me for so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained, to kill Viet Cong. So many times over the years, I have stared at your picture and your daughter. 
I suspect each time my heart and guts would burst with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters myself now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why I'm able to be here today. It is time to continue the life process for me to release my pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir. And with this, if anyone wants to look, there's a photo that this man carried of this Vietnamese man and his daughter. When we're willing to look and be with the pain, forgiveness is possible and compassion naturally arises. That is the shift that goes on. We shift from being living out of pain, guilt, fear, to being the compassionate awareness that can hold it all. The sixth Zen master describes this. He says, good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Each moment of mindful being with our experience is a moment of opening to our Buddha nature, opening to a sense of our whole being. Rumi describes it as turning to the friend. He says, how to cure bad habits, being caught small, being caught in thinking mind, how to cure bad habits. Send me back to you. When water gets caught in habitual whirlpools, dig away out through the bottom to the ocean. There is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so bad they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Look as long as you can at the friend you love, no matter whether that friend is moving away from you or coming back toward you. when we're stuck, when we're caught, to look towards the friend we love, which is love itself, which is wakefulness, which is presence. Whether we feel that's pulling away from us or coming towards us, to keep facing our life with care is the path to freedom. Let's sit together for just a few moments in silence, if you will. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.